Okay, hello. So today we are chatting with Dr. Monica Erdell from the University of Florida and Dr. Brian Brewer from Eastern Michigan University. How are you both feeling today? How has your pandemic been so far? Well, so far so good. Um, we got vaccinated and didn't contract the virus so far. So fingers crossed. That's wonderful. And how are you, Dr. Brewer? Good. I had the good fortune of spending most of the pandemic in Taiwan, where they were mostly pandemic-free, uh, and have just returned to the United States. How was your experience as a visiting scholar in Taiwan? The courses I taught there were upper-level courses, uh, graduate courses, actually. Um, so they weren't the same kind of uh, general education, philosophy of life course that I that this work is based on. Um, I do try to develop a community of inquiry in whichever class I'm teaching, uh, and and that can be done despite what some people say about the Confucian style of education, where this the teacher is the so-called sage on a stage. <laughs> I think uh, students do warm to conversation, um, but you have to give a little too. You have to allow them. Uh, some time, and you have to allow them to feel sometimes embarrassed and 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 pause and be comfortable with with pauses and hesitancy. I think it is possible to to bring them along. When I was in China, um, and I was I discussed some of this wisdom work with some colleagues over there. There was quite a bit of interest in in maybe developing some classes like this in China. So that may be something I do in the future. Can you both please tell us a bit about yourselves and what each of you do? Brian, do you want to start? Uh, I'll be happy to start. Uh, my name is Brian Bruyere. I'm a professor at Eastern Michigan University, where I teach philosophy in the Department of History and Philosophy. Uh, my specialty is ancient Chinese philosophy, but I've branched out into. Uh, with Monica's help into psychology, and I also do some cognitive science.、Um, so I have a fairly、uh, broad resume, and、um, in, am interested in in many things. As I think, I think many researchers are are quite interdisciplinary now, and、um, I'm happy to be part of that group of people. And Dr. Adele. Well, I'm interested in a lot of things too,、um, but my major focus is on、um, successful adult human development across the life course, and I have been particularly interested in aging well, and then got interested in dying well, and、um, of course the development of wisdom and what we can do to develop wisdom. And how wisdom benefits people at all stages of the life course, but particularly in old age.、Um, and so, and now I'm in. Recently, I got more interested in organizational wisdom. What can organizations do,、um, particular wise organizations, to make the world a better place? That is so fascinating. And so, both of you, if I may say, are experts in your own fields、uh, and quite different fields, I might add. And despite having somewhat different backgrounds,、um, as you mentioned, Dr. Brio, you both sort of came together to develop this wisdom-promoting philosophy course.、Uh, so, can you tell us, please, how that happened and how you came to team up? Monica, do you want to tell the story? <laughs> I think Brian actually can tell you more because,、uh, but、uh, we were both、um, senior fellows,、um, uh, Templeton fellows, Templeton positive psych psychology fellows,、um, some years ago, and which was I think a six seven week kind of、mm -hmm. endeavor, right,、uh, in Philadelphia at the positive psychology center under Marty Seligman. And、uh, was very exciting time. I mean, we had a lot of speakers about positive psychology, and so the whole、uh, topic was flourishing.、Mm -hmm. I think. And then、um, a couple of years later, I think, and and that's how I met Brian. Brian, we we were divided up into different teams, research teams, and we were not in the same team. I have to say,、um, Brian was in a team by、uh, Mikhail. Uh, Chick Mikhaili, right? If I <laughs> pronounce this correctly, and、um, 
I was in a team led by George Wayland. Um, but um, we did a lot of, the teams did a lot of things together. So we got to know each other. And then uh, I think a couple of years later, he contacted me and, you know, asked me if I would be interested to participate in this research okay. study. And so I think Brian can tell you more about that. Yeah, I remember going out to lunch with you because um, when you had introduced your work, you were saying that you were trying to develop wisdom in the classroom, foster wisdom in the classroom. And it kind of got under my skin a little bit that psychologists were or sociologists were trying to develop wisdom and that's supposed to be the turf of philosophers. True, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, we call our, we, we call ourselves lovers of wisdom. Uh, and so, uh, we went out to lunch and I, 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 needled you with questions about the kinds of things you taught and the kinds of things that you were trying to foster in the classroom. And, and the more I spoke with you, the more uh, impressed I was with the kind of work you were doing and the potential for it. And I just kind of stuck that in the back of my head. Uh, and when I was teaching my philosophies of life course, I was wondering if maybe maybe I was inadvertently fostering wisdom in my students. Uh, and, and that is sort of how I thought maybe if you wanted to help, I could let the survey, I could distribute the survey to my students and we could see uh, what was happening. Um, and so with regards to your program, you know, did you have a pre-established definition of wisdom before the program began when you folks were just chatting together. And did you expect that definition to change? Well, I I do. I, I mean, I have been working with the three-dimensional wisdom model since, um, since actually since I wrote my dissertation and I started to write my dissertation really in 1990, I mean, a long time ago. And uh, so my definition of wisdom really hasn't changed. I mean, maybe has been refined in some ways, but I still use the model that actually was proposed by Clayton, by Vivian Clayton, that wisdom is um, an integration of cognitive, reflective, and what she called uh, affective dimensions, and which I have renamed uh, the compassionate dimension because it's not because sometimes people thought the affective dimension just meant meant emotion, but no, it means very specific emotions, uh, sympathy and compassion for other people, and that has been my wisdom definition ever since. Well, I hadn't. It's it's a bit ironic. I remember when I was taking my first philosophy class, the professor began by telling us that. Uh, philosophy is about loving wisdom. And I thought, well, this is great. This could be really interesting. We're going to learn how to be wiser people, which is something anybody should be interested in, right? Um, but as the semester progressed, the topic of wisdom never came up again. Uh, and it rarely does in philosophy. Ironically, we really don't talk about wisdom very much. So um, when I first started thinking about this project more, I did quite a bit of research to see what other people had thought about wisdom and its definition. And um, I was fairly convinced that Monica's uh, view of wisdom is um, quite far reaching and, and comprehensive and, and good enough uh, for the kind of work I was doing in the classroom. So I didn't have much to add to it. In fact, um, I, I read about uh, people who had done comparisons between East and West uh, with regard to wisdom, conceptions of wisdom. And her, the way she has that compassionate aspect in there, the compassionate dimension, um, seems more in line with Eastern views of wisdom, um, which gives her a certain broadness that some conception of wisdom don't have. Now, what do you think of wisdom uh, education program, first of all, is trying to achieve? I actually also um, was looking at if um, certain ways of teaching can increase wisdom, but I didn't do it as systematic as Brian did, and he will tell you a little bit more. He did it in a much more systematic way. Um, we have the Center of Spirituality and Health at the University of Florida, and we are teaching classes as part of this center. 
Um, these classes are sponsored by the center. And um, the idea is that we teach classes that uh, address the whole person, not just um, you know, the cognitive part of students, but really um, the, the whole part. And uh, so the whole person meaning that engages, you know, uh, the imagination, creativity, spirituality, the center is called spirituality and health, right? Um, and uh, however, in a very broadly defined way, not in a religious sense from spirituality, but in a very broadly defined way in terms of what's the meaning of life, right? Why are we here? Things like this. And, um, and, and as part of the center, faculty who are part of the centers come from all over the university, from the medical school, from psychology, from the counseling center, me from uh, sociology, um, and we have from the College of Education, from religion. I mean, they do come from all over the place. But what we have in common is exactly this mission that we want to help students to live a you know, what, what Aristotle would call a more flourishing life. But we do it in different ways. Um, and so at one point, um, I, I, I thought, well, let's do a little bit of study and see if indeed, you know, the way how we teach it um, does increase wisdom as measured by my three-dimensional wisdom scale. And so we did um, a pre and post, and we had control classes, you know, similar with control classes. And lo and behold, yes, you know, it worked, you know, it was, it, it increased in the reflective and I think the compassionate dimension, but not in the cognitive dimension. However, in, in our control classes, you know, the control classes, the cognitive dimension decreased. <laughs> It's like, you know, what, you know, at the end of the semester, students, you know, don't want to know more things. You know, the co cognitive dimension measures kind of, you know, I, mean, I really want to know, you know, it's just, you know, it's not enough that people tell me I want to know. And I think at the end of the semester, students are just maxed out and they just, just tell me. Uh, curiosity is gone, but not, but not in our classes that were uh, what that we called the gross classes uh, um, taught by the Center for Spirituality and Health. And so, from my perspective, and um, it's uh, these classes what would really um, what really develops wisdom or helps to grow wisdom a little bit. And not that these people all became wiser at the end, you know, it just moved the needle a little bit. Um, but what really helps is, is an experiential learning. And that means do something, right? And then discuss. So in some of our classes, we did uh, service learning. So service learning and then discussing afterwards, okay, how can this be applied, you know, to what we are learning? Um, I was co-teaching a class with um, a member of the religion department, a former dean of the medical school, uh, and it was called The Integration of Science, Religion, and Compassionate Love. And it was a really interesting class. And uh, students did service learning as part of this, and then we discussed it. You know, how is it relevant? You know, how's it relevant for your life? How is it relevant for the classes? In another class of mine, they are uh, volunteering at a nursing home and uh, interviewing a nursing home resident for eight weeks. And so they get to know a, a nursing home resident, right, about their life course. And then they compare the interviews and they do the same kind of interviews with one of their older relatives, you know, grandmother, grandfather. And they learn something about, you know, other people and also get the idea of the life course and maybe the factors that affect the life course. And, um, you know, hopefully get a little bit more life experiences in the process, you know, tolerance increases, things like this. Um, currently, I'm teaching a class which um, it's actually, it's, a, it, it's I know that Brian is also using uh, this book and it's called um, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations. And students are required to practice uh, philosophy each week, you know, a different Greek philosophy each week. And then we talk about it, we discuss it. And so hopefully through these kind of uh, applied assignments, students 
students become a little bit wiser. But it's not just the assignments per se, but then also reflecting on it. You know, what does it mean reflecting? And I think that's that's the key to uh, growing a little bit wiser. Yeah, I think uh, Monica did a good job summarizing the importance of uh, both experience and reflection. Um, both of those can help develop one's perspective. When students are in university, they're often very focused on their own lives and their own learning. Uh, and it's often very much in their head, um, but not a lot about reflecting on where they're coming from and where they're going uh, and how they relate to the people around them in terms of their own values and beliefs. By the, at the time a student enters university, and by the time they leave, they've done a lot of growing in terms of their values and beliefs. But a lot of times it's, it's under the sort of under the surface of the water and they don't, they don't have a chance to reflect as their values change and their beliefs change. And what these kind of classes, the kind of classes that, that Monica's teaching and the kind of class that I try to teach um, is to bring the values and beliefs to the fore more, give them a chance to reflect and to sort of test the things they're learning out in the real world. So service learning is one way to do that, uh, which is what Monica mentioned. I try to send students out and have them do kind of experiments uh, out in the world where they think about something we've learned in the class, a particular belief or value, uh, and then and then devise a way to, on the one hand, think about their past. Uh, for instance, maybe the belief is something as simple as honesty. Think about somebody in their past who's been dishonest. Uh, maybe it's themselves, maybe it's somebody they know and how that has influenced their lives. Um, or somebody who is brutally honest and how, again, how it has influenced their lives. But also think about the future, right? What could I do in the future to be better with respect to this particular value. Uh, and so on the weekends, what I have them do is go out and test one of these. I'm going to, for instance, I'm not going to tell a lie all weekend and then see how what happens as the weekend unfolds and then reflect on that. I think I, I, I think um, the students who who um, there is a motivation component. I think you know if the students really want to learn more, you know, one and we are not and neither Brian nor I tell them this is you know to make you wiser. We never mentioned, you know, the wisdom word per se, you know, in this. I mean, maybe as part of the philosophy in some ways, but not per se. Um, and so in, in some ways, the assignments, I mean, that, that we give and I, that I give particular is really to reflect on things. And you can tell, yes, some, some students are better at this and they take it much more seriously, um, than others. Um, but again, you know, that's, that's up to the students. There is, that's that's the freedom, you know, that uh, and that depends on the motivation of the students. But they, they, you give them the opportunity to reflect on things and deeply. And I, uh, I give them typically in a, a kind of an assignment, reflect on this, that, and this, and just hit all the points. But how deep people get into it, well, you know, that's up to them. So. Is it the case, it sounds like for both of you, that I guess people who are wiser will be more articulate about what they know. Like, say, if you're just standing in front of somebody, like somebody who went through these programs versus a typical student, at first they might not seem any different, but then if you were to ask them a question, like, um, I guess, what matters to you or something, is, it, is the idea they'll be much more articulate about what, say, what values they hold or sort of they've reflected more about their life? Or is it something like that that you're aiming for? One of the um, confluences of ancient philosophy and positive psychology, um, and this is not a coincidence, by the way, is that Aristotle saw virtues as um, skills. And uh, wisdom, if you think of it as a skill, can be broken down into a number of capacities. Uh, and one of those Michelle hit on is the the ability to articulate values to say what I believe in and what I value 
um, but also to recognize when values conflict, right? If you can't, if you can't isolate particular values, you can't recognize when they come into conflict. Uh, and what students, at least in my class, I try to isolate these kind of values as we go along. Um, and by the end, it, it, at first, students struggle with trying to isolate the things they believe and the things they value and why they value them. Um, but by the end of the semester, they get better and better. Um, and so the goal is not that they become more articulate speakers. The goal is that they're better at recognizing values and, and seeing when they come into conflict and how to resolve those kind of conflicts. Not that there's one particular method that I teach them to do that, because there isn't. <laughs> the idea is that they're able to um, try to negotiate the complexities themselves. I think that's part of what wisdom is. So with regards to these wisdom capacities, um, how long do you think students would maintain those the five abilities that you outline in your articles? Do you think they would maintain them, say, a year? Um, after completing the program or um, Dr. Adel, for instance, you did a study on how wisdom development helped buffer against um, stressful feelings. Do you think that this course would also help with that? We did a follow-up study, right? We didn't publish it, um, but w the one we did publish uh, a year later, we sent out the same survey to the students that we could contact. We couldn't contact the controls, but we could contact uh, our own students. And um, it, it held up uh, almost perfectly, right? The, their, their wisdom was maintained at the same level, which was, uh, that was a year later. It, it, yeah, it did. The only thing, the only problem was that the numbers were relatively small and, and I, I don't think we had the control group or something, right. so we didn't necessarily feel right that right. we could publish from it but it, it was reassuring right. right that it held up and it wasn't just the blip mm -hmm. you know um i mean the answer is what what i would also say it it really it depends on the student um for some students these classes can be really uh, can have a profound effect on their lives and sometimes you know students tell me oh this has been a life-changing experience um now of course they tell you after the and you know right after the semester who know how long it, it, it holds you know we don't know but you know, and for other students, it might just be they had to take a class and they just wanted to get through it and they just did the minimum. So it, from, from my perspective, this is not, I'm not too concerned about this. You know, I offer this. I offer this as a service, so to speak. I offer this class and the students sign up for it and they can take, you know, what they want. And if if they don't want it, I cannot force them. You know, I cannot force to change, to grow, to become wise. I cannot force that. Um, so it's an offering. And some people take the offering and it really helps them in their life. And they really helps them to reflect on things and to, um, you know, change certain things and uh, grow wiser in the process. And for some students, it's like, I don't know, you know, um, what this class was about. Now, I have to tell you, I was teaching a, for, for a couple of summers, we, we, the university, our university have implemented a class and the title is, what is a good life? And the idea was that every freshman would take this class and they would have an opportunity to reflect on what is a good life. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful idea the pro the problem is the problem is that this is a required class or it used to be a required class and and then many people many students didn't want to be there you know i said why why i don't want to reflect on my life you know <laughs> i don't care about my life right i want to do chemistry or engineering or whatever you know 
And so you cannot force the students. You know, as I said, I, I taught it for, for a couple of summers and some students came to me after, you know, after this semester and said, thank you so much. You really helped me to get so, to do some things. And then other students, you get in the evaluations, you know, I don't know why this is a required class. You know, it was a waste of my time. And it's the same class, right? It's exactly the same class. It's the same content. And for some students, it's, you know, it's life affirming, life changing. And for some students, it's an absolute nuisance. Um, fortunately, this class is no longer required. So students now have choices what they can take. And it's much better in this way. You know, I don't, you know, so you cannot force students, you know. Um, Sometimes, you know, I, I really want to have my students that they want to be in the class, but sometimes you get students in the class who are desperate for the last class and mine was the only one left that has open seats and they end up in a class that they really don't want and they don't get it, right? They don't get the benefit of the other students who really want to be in there. Um, but, you know, that's, that's in general, right? That's life. Yeah, right. If these uh, really are skills that are being developed in the classroom, then like any other skill, they can be perpetuated and they can be developed further. So if students leave the class and they feel like they've um, begun to grasp the skills that we're teaching, then if they're interested, then they can continue to, to develop them further by reading, um, by reflecting, by doing some self-cultivation exercises of their own. I mean, there are things such as meditation. Um, there are activities you can do. It's interesting that even in philosophy, we don't emphasize the idea of self-cultivation very much. I think that's changing a little bit now. Um, a lot of times, if you think where people can do some kind of self-cultivation, it's usually in Sunday school or in some kind of church-related activities. Um, to have secular self-cultivation is not as common in our society. So this gives students an opportunity to see what that's about and to take it seriously and then perhaps continue further. Mm -hmm. um, and this is more kind of a tangent, but um, what would you say to folks who think that, you know, as you said, wisdom is more of a thing that is developed um, or gained through religious practices, through family and just from life in general, you know, um, rather than a university classroom setting? Right, it's sort of unique. Uh, to think of it as in a university setting. And I think that's part of um, what makes what Monica is doing and, and what we co collaborate on a little bit special. Um, but it, it, it shouldn't be this way, right? I think in, in the university, we're trying to develop a whole person. Um, but it's difficult because each professor is focused on their own narrow specialty uh, and researching that and conveying that. So to be able to think, to see the person as a whole, uh, it, it takes a little bit of also interdisciplinarity. Uh, so Monica mentioned that she was team teaching a class uh, and that can be a good way to go. Um, universities emphasize in print and in their memorandums interdisciplinary, but they don't always follow it up <laughs> with the kind of funding that's required or the kind of other assistance. So, um, Hopefully, I know the ideal is there, and hopefully it will continue to expand so that we can consider the student as a whole person. Yeah, and I, I, would, I would just add that, I mean, I have no problem with it if, um, if people get this in, uh, in, in their religious community, you know, in, in, in their faith community. That's perfectly all right. The problem is um, that many young adults become, have become the nuns, right? Um, meaning that they are um, not necessarily religious or, or spiritual, but still might be searching for something, but not necessarily in the faith traditions of their parents. Um, or even their parents are not too religious. So there is this um, if, if they do find it there, wonderful, you know, and if, if the church offers more 
then I would say, well, you just have to believe and that's the end of it, right? If they actually offer a path of uh, development, you know, a develop, development toward greater wisdom and also spiritual growth, sure, right? But what does this mean? Um, I, I, I've been a lifelong Catholic and um, as a Catholic, you're supposed to go to church every Sunday. And, um, and I went to church every Sunday. And when I was 14, I was kind of um, asking myself, well, what's the point of this? You know, so you hear basically the sermon and you hear, you know, the readings, but there was no path towards spiritual development. And I had a certain hunger for spiritual development. And it wasn't offered in the church. And you have a lot of young people actually abandon the church, you know, after they get confirmed often, or, you know, after they have done their, you know, checkboxes, and, uh, and they search for something else. So, you know, to, to reflect on what is the good life, or what is the meaning of life, you know, if, if the, the university can offer this through philosophy, or psychology, or, you know, even, God forbid, sociology, right? Um, then yes, I think that's that's. I mean, this is this should be our task. Our task should not just to um, acknowledge. Part of the task is right to provide knowledge, but it shouldn't stop there. It should also help them to develop as human beings, to be kinder human beings, to be more compassionate, to be more tolerant. And that's not accomplished if you just give people knowledge. And I think that's why it's so important that they experience things and then reflect on it, like the service learning, you know, or, or, or doing what Brian is saying, doing these little, you know, exercises, ex personal experiments, um, where you actually experience things. I think the key is really experiencing it, you know, so sitting with somebody um, and interviewing somebody in a nursing home, what does it tell them? Well, first of all, it gives them the life story, and, and the life story is often very different from their own family. But it also shows them that being in a nursing home is a pretty shitty experience because our nursing homes in the United States are awful, quite frankly, you know, unless you're very rich. And, you know, and the nursing homes where we go in, it's no, it's, you know, these are the regular nursing homes. And just to see this, you know, I could tell them about it, you know, and, 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 and I do, but this is not the same as actually going there and sitting there, you know, for half an hour and talking to someone, experiences, really experience this. And I think through experience and then reflecting on it, you know, this really helps them to grow as human beings. In line with that, I think that just reminded me of your idea of a flourishing life and it highlights the importance of your course and similar courses. Um, so I wanted to ask, based on what you explained right now, I suppose that how frequently you do exercises, so journaling exercises, for instance, in your classroom, maybe the frequency doesn't matter as much, but, you know, what you actually gain from the experience or what you experience, would, would you both agree? Well, I, I in, in my classes, I try to do something kind of every week to, to, to tell you the truth. And sometimes it's more intense than other, than other exercise, depends on the class. But I liked to have them do some kind of a reflection every week. Yeah, I do the same. Every weekend is devoted to them doing both uh, what I call a reflection journal and an experience journal. And um, so since we're chatting about the reflection journal now, you both mentioned there's this idea of like um, intrinsic motivation that students need to have. And that's why having it mandatory as a mandatory course maybe isn't the best idea because then you take away that choice from students and that choice is just so important. Um, but there might be certain tricky situations sometimes, and I'm wondering if you ever came across this. Um, for instance, sometimes students might have experienced instances of trauma in their past, um, whether it's uh, clinical diagnoses, instances of abuse and so on. How did you deal with um, those uh, situations? Or did you have any training for yourself? Did you have any resources for students as well? That's a good question. 
Um, fortunately, I, I haven't experienced situations where um, I needed any particular professional training to deal with them. And I do tell my students at the beginning of the semester um, that when they write in their journals um, that I'm not a therapist uh, and that I can't give them advice about how to live their life. What I do is I expose them to ideas and we try to talk through the different ideas to help them understand. Um, but I think they realize pretty quickly that I'm not a therapist and, <laughs> and the class is not a therapy class. Um, but that doesn't mean that they can't reflect on things that they've experienced in their lives. Uh, in fact, that's part of the class is for them to reflect. And if those are traumatic, um, then those are open for them to think about. Yeah, I would also say that, I mean, I'm not a therapist and, you know, I would tell them that, you know, if they really need, um, they need to find um, a professional help. And in all of our syllabi, you know, there's a number where uh, they can call or um, an email with um, the um we call it uh, you matter we uh, what's called um you matter we care yes um so it's this program that um it's a counseling program that they can uh, contact um so in and i also i don't necessarily i mean this is not psychotherapy you know where we go back into the past it's really more in the present the exercises many of the exercises is do that you know, do this. And now you experience this while you are doing this, you experience certain things and then you reflect on it. You know, so it's more like this. And um and 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 then we you know reflect and, and then we talk about it in class and we reflect on it together. What does it mean? So it's more it's more like this rather than going back into maybe traumatic experiences mm -hmm. in the past. Well, I was just going to say that I do try to get them to reflect on things in their past. Um, that's one way. The idea is if they're thinking about a particular value or belief, it helps if they can uh, think of a concrete situation where maybe something has happened to them in the past or they've done something in the past. Um, again, honesty is a good way to think about it. If you're just thinking about honesty in the abstract, yeah, it's good to be honest and most people are honest. But when you think about things that have happened to you in the past, when somebody cheated you or somebody misled you or, or you misled somebody else, um, you can get a, a much richer understanding of the complexities of the idea. Um, so sometimes I, I do, part of the reflection journal is to think about whatever idea we're entertaining um, by thinking about things that have happened in, in a person's past, not in a psychotherapeutic way. And so going back into the classroom, one interesting activity that you used is to directly pose questions towards students during classroom discussions. Was this strategy effective? What did you think of it? Right. This is how I teach classes all the time. I make sure I learn the students' names on the first day of class. And when I ask a question, I don't pose it to the class in general. I pose it to a particular student by name. Uh, but before I do that, I make sure the students understand that they can always pass uh, and they don't have to explain why. So. I put them on the spot a little bit by asking specific questions to specific students by name, but I soften the blow <laughs> by allowing them to pass without explanation. Um, and I found that that's the best way to start a conversation. Um, you ask a specific question to a student. Uh, Bobby, for instance, uh, in the reading we did for today, uh, the idea of um, the the moral person comes up. Uh, what did you think about that? Something like that. And if he forever, if he didn't do the reading or he's not ready to answer the question, he can just say pass and I go to the next student. That doesn't happen very often, um, but it's available. All of my classes, except for my methods classes, I would say um, are basically based on discussions and questions and then uh, discussions, but, but particularly, um, 
when I give them these assignments, the reason is that we also discuss it in class, you know, so that's where the reflection comes in. Um, they write about it first, but then I ask certain people, I mean, I, I asked for volunteers to share what happened. Now, of course, it depends on the class. If it's a really small class, and which I hopefully, you know, we'll have in the fall, we can actually, everybody can actually talk, right? I mean, if it's, if it's you know, only a couple of people. However, if you have, and which I typically have, I have large classes. Um, so, you know, it's, a small class would be 50 students. That means you cannot have everybody talking. And that means you are relying on volunteers, you know, who wants to share, right? Who wants to share their experiences? And then I, you pick two or three, you know, examples, and then we all discuss the example. You know, and what does it mean? Uh, but they all write about it. So you have the, uh, the written reflection, you know, everybody has a written reflection. It's just that in the, in the class, you, you, you know, not everybody can discuss it. I see. So that definitely must be one of the challenges of having something like this in a larger classroom. But then because of the reflection uh, pieces, you still do have that engagement. Yeah. Um, and another thing I was curious about was the uh, community of inquiry. Uh, and before we jump in to how community of inquiries are so cool, for folks at home who might not know, could um Let's say, Dr. Brewer, could you please briefly define what a community of inquiry is? Right. The idea with a community of inquiry is something you see in the pragmatic tradition and uh, specifically in, uh, and I, I learned a lot about it in what's called philosophy with children, uh, which I did a little bit as a graduate student. Um, and the idea is that if all the students are education, the basic idea uh, of education from a pragmatist point of view is that a student, uh, you mentioned intrinsic motivation before, a student has a question uh, and they're trying to answer it. Uh, and you see in a lot of progressive educational pedagogical systems, uh, the Montessori system, for instance, or the Steiner system, students are encouraged to um, to inquire, to explore, to follow their interests. And a community of inquiry is allowing those interests to be part of the exploration. So you begin a class by asking questions, not just eliciting, not just guiding students so that you can convey information to them, but um, eliciting their own interest so that they can explore those interests further. When it comes to exploring values and beliefs, I try to convey certain values and beliefs from the books we're reading. But the idea is that students will find some of them particularly interesting, not all of them uh, necessarily. And then the ones that they do find interesting, they have the freedom to explore those further. Um, it's a community in the sense that we're all going in the same direction together. We're all developing ourselves together. We have a program uh, that we can, um, we can converse together. We can, like Monica was saying, one person will say, well, I had this experience. And then another person will say, well, I had a similar experience or I had a different experience. And they can exchange information towards a common goal of self-development. Yes, um, that's exactly, I, I, I mean, I had I actually hadn't heard about the term community of inquiry, but I think I'm 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 doing that too with, without necessarily calling it this this way. Um, so the idea is is really, um, you know, it's it's show don't tell. It's this or what I would call experience don't tell. Yeah, because there's one way you can just tell them, give them the information. Well, what does it mean? Information comes in, you know, it sticks if it if it basically if you already have these preconceived notion, you know, if it fits in my worldview, it will stick. If it doesn't fit in my worldview, it will just go out, you know, on the other ear. Um, and so the idea is really to to open this up in some respect and say, okay, here is some information, some experiences that other people had, that you had, 
what does it mean, right? What does it actually mean? And so that, that uh, students can then open it up and say, oh, okay, I get it, right? It, this is what it means, you know, and this is what it means for me, at least in an ideal way. You know, again, you know, some students get it, some don't, you know, some will say, no, just, you know, feed me the information, tell me what's on the test, and that's all I need. Otherwise, there's nothing else I need from you. And others are there, no, I really want to know, I really want to learn, you know, and that's what you hope for. That's what you're, you know, basically teaching for. Because if you just want the information, read the book, right? It's already in the book. You know, but this in it, this this community of inquiry. Let's explore this together. What does this mean, actually? This information. What does it mean for me, for others, right? For how I should live my life. That's the interesting part. I love this idea of this intellectual curiosity that the community of inquiry can foster. And Dr. Bree, you mentioned this idea of freedom and again both of you saying you know there's a sense of community that you can build in a classroom which personally I didn't really have because the classrooms were so big and like you said everyone just really wants to get those grades and they don't really care about the actual learning process um, but maybe they would with more of these strategies that you implemented especially there was another fun activity you had where you had students brainstorm their own assignment questions uh, for the week and, you know, I was really intrigued by this, but um, for instance, Dr. Adele, uh, why do you think this was important and how, more importantly, did you go by moderating this group activity? No, I, I think that's a question for Brian because it's, that's what's, what, what Brian does. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Dr. Bria. <laughs> right. So at the, we spend the first, so the class meets two days a week and we spend two, those two days discussing the values and beliefs that are in the book, uh, trying to understand them. Many of these ideas come from different cultures that I teach. So I teach about ancient Greek philosophy, but also about Confucianism and Buddhism. So the, the ideas we're learning about can be quite foreign. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand them. Uh, and then if the students want to understand them further outside of class, uh, we brainstorm these, uh, these exercises for them to do. Uh, and I just ask uh, about 10 minutes before class is over uh, if they can think of some things they can do over the weekend to further explore these ideas. And they come up with ideas and we sort of refine them together. Uh, I write them on the board. Everything they say, I write on the board. This is one of the, I think, one of the techniques of fostering a community of inquiries. When a student says something, you write it on the board. Uh, it validates what the student says, uh, and then you can think more about it later. Uh, you don't evaluate it at the moment, <clears throat> necessarily, uh, especially you don't shoot it down. Uh, and then I go out when, as soon as class is over and I try to um, add some details to them and fill them out a little bit. And then I post them online. And so they'll have a menu of things they can do uh, over the weekend. They choose one. Uh, and that menu expands as the unit goes on. I see. Okay. And so I love how it's mostly focused on uh, the students, especially what you said about validating what the students are saying. I think that's so conducive as well to their learning. Um, and with regards to the text, that you used um, for their learning. In your one of your articles, you mentioned you chose texts that offered elements of philosophy that were directly relevant to the students' own lives. Um, how did you determine uh, whether these texts were relevant? And more importantly, did students see that connection as, oh, hey, this text is actually relevant to my own life? When we think about ancient philosophy, we often, I think, People think it tends to seem dusty and uh, and distant from daily life. But actually, a lot of the concepts they're dealing with, something as simple as fate, um, students today still think that uh, things happen for a reason. Uh, and this is an idea that's been around for a long time. People believe it today. And, and the idea, the trick to making it seem relevant to their lives is to show them that relevance. 
um, and, and ask them questions that can guide them in directions where they see relevance in their lives. Um, maybe they've been in a car accident. Uh, did they think some people's response to a traumatic event is that it happened for a reason? And that's a belief in fate. It's a belief in destiny. So the teacher's job then is to try to fill out that belief and, and see and show them um, how it connects up with other beliefs or how it may contradict other beliefs uh, and so on. I'm teaching a small class uh, right now which uh, uses a book, uh, Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations by um, um, Evans. And he, I mean, it, this is a very, it's, it's not too much scientific book. It's a very accessible book um, and really written for so that uh, people can say, well, why don't you try this or that? And so I have kind of distilled it to a weekly um, um, exercise, or let's put it, put it this way, this philosophy, I, I translated what they need to do to live according to the philosophy. Um, and as I said, it's very accessible, this book. It's easy to read, you know, um, it doesn't have a scientific jargon in any way. Um, and um, so that's why I like it, because I also uh, realize that if students, um, that many students don't read. <laughs> They try to get, a, you know, they just tell me what's on the test and, uh, you know, I read that part. And so you need to find um, reading materials that kind of excites them, I think. And uh, I, th I hopefully that's a book that does. And it's actually, this is a, it's only a one credit class that is actually designed just to read one particular book. It's called Uncommon Reads. And so you choose one particular book and, you know, we read it and then you discuss it. And in my class, you actually do things. Um, so you would assume that uh, the students who sign up for a class about a book that they will actually read it, right? But often in other classes, it can become a challenge. So I try to find material that does have readings that kind of more, are more interesting, you know, might speak to the students. Uh, in fact, sometimes I think it's having a really comprehensive textbook might be counterproductive because then students feel overwhelmed and they don't read it. Yeah. So yeah, I'd rather have um, a book particularly for the introductory classes that gives the information in chunks, um, has um, excerpts or you know articles, original articles that are interesting that students like to read. Um, and um, sometimes they still don't read it, you know. So now I have, a, you know, reading. Uh, I, I, I ask reading questions, you know, just to make sure that they do do the readings, you know, which are very simple reading questions. If you just read it, you should be able to answer. But it's a challenge. Let's put it this way. It is a challenge to find materials that students feel worthwhile reading, yes. So a challenge, but definitely a worthy one, you know, because we're trying uh, students to reflect on their lives. Right. But um, so for students who are interested or maybe audience members who might be interested, are there any other texts or exemplars that you think would be appropriate for this course or just anyone who's interested in developing their wisdom? There are a lot of um, books on wisdom that are accessible um, that can be used to discuss um, things um, but again it, it you know it depends um, how much uh, deeply you want to get into what's the purpose is you know do you want to know what the what the um, what the scientific knowledge is in certain regards or do you want to um, you know, really have more an, a, a book that motivates you to do something. Um, and I think there are also a lot of books out there that uh, try to do this. I think a lot of also the uh, positive psychology books, you know, that are out there are quite um, useful and accessible. 
there are a lot of self-help books out there. And I think uh, professors often uh, look down their nose at, at popular self-help. Uh, and I think readers of self-help books often make the mistake that they'll find the one book that will change their life and they'll never have to read another self-help book again. <laughs> and I think if um, a better attitude is that reading classics like the Analects of Confucius or the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is, is one way to um, get a certain perspective and to learn new things, uh, but also self-help books, can, popular self-help books can do the same kinds of things. If you look at self-development as a lifelong process, uh, that one book isn't going to give you all the answers. Instead, you can learn a little bit and you can read some more and learn a little bit more and read some more and learn, learn a little bit more. And then maybe you'll go back to one of those books you read 20 years ago and you'll get something totally different out of it if you read it again. Um, so seeing education, self-education as a, a lifelong process, I think is an important um, way to, to forge your own path. What are some practices or texts that folks can use in order to work on self-development or to keep important ideas of wisdom in the front of their mind. Right. So one of the books that I use is Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which really, we think, was probably his journal. Um, he didn't write it for other people to read. He wrote it for himself to reflect on, to help him articulate his ideas, um, and maybe to look back on later as well. Uh, and that's one thing that a person can do who's interested in self-development is keep a journal of ideas. One of the practices that you mentioned in ancient times was keeping an idea in the front of, in the front of your mind. So if you wanted to, for instance, be more courageous, how could you do that? Well, one way is to think of a motto, uh, and that motto will help you keep the idea in the front of your mind. Um, but journaling can do that. Um, spending time around the same people who share the same kind of ideas um, can help you develop virtues as well. Um, so there are different methods. And I think um, exploring those methods um, and, and trying to learn new methods um, is, again, all part of this path of self-development. And there, there are many ways. And Dr. Brewer, since you just mentioned um, one of your exemplars, Aurelius, um, you also had other exemplars like Confucius and Buddha. Um, I was wondering, why did you um, choose them or did you both choose them together? And why do you think it is that nowadays we tend to gravitate towards these more um, historical or dusty, as you said, um, exemplars over more contemporary individuals? I'm not sure why, but in the past, uh, maybe because life was a little bit simpler in the past, uh, people tended to try to develop a comprehensive view of the universe. Uh, and they articulated those in, in books. So Marcus Aurelius has his beliefs. He was a Stoic, so he's, he didn't invent Stoicism, but a lot of Stoic ideas are in his meditations. Confucius also didn't invent Confucianism, even though his name in English is attached to it. He was uh, inheriting a long tradition, uh, and through his conversations with his students, those ideas were recorded. Uh, and so these, these books have a certain comprehensiveness to them, so they seem appropriate as philosophies of life. When I was developing my class, I tried to have one from different major world traditions. So I had the Stoic tradition from Europe, Confucius from China, the Buddha from India. I also had at the beginning, I had Jesus from the Middle East and the European tradition as well. And that fell out. I see. And Dr. Adele? When we were teaching this quote, as I say, uh, right now, my favorite book to use is this um, philosophy for life. But um, we also used a book in the past for another class that also grappled with um, these more existential issues. Um, and one was um, by Bolozov that's called Life Has Meaning, It Just Takes Practice. 
and comes from a from a Hindu perspective in some ways, but 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 also, I mean, no, it's not too heavy. It's just that that he has he followed the Hindu philosophy, and then comparing it to a book um, by um, this Italian author, but it uh, escapes me now. But it's called um, um, "What's It All About." Um, and um, in that's a, a secular perspective. Hold on, I actually, I think I have it here. It's called, yes. So the book is by Julian Baggini and it's called, What's It All About? Philosophy and the Meaning of Life. And that comes from a completely secular perspective. And the interesting thing that then in the at the end, right, so both authors basically converge, you know, what is actually the important part, you know, in, in, in life. Even so they are coming from really different perspectives. And um, yeah, and so and so these are but these are the classes that I teach that are more, you know, um, talking about the more the holistic perspectives. Um, when I teach my more uh, sociological classes, um, I'm trying to find books that um, have stories in them, you know, so it's not just the uh, information, but also um, give you um, stories about um, research stories, which often is qualitative research, really. You know, using qualitative research uh, allows students, I think, to get better access to um, to the research findings than if you just present the quantitative findings. Amazing. Okay, and so with such an innovative course with all of these wonderful texts, um, I was wondering what sort of challenges did you experience implementing it so whether it was funding conducting needs assessments and so on and how did you address them if you could yeah i mean in in, in my case this this one class um that i taught for um i think some summers which was um was based on service learning and then also the kind of the discussion the meaning of life um that really yeah the funding disappeared for that class um it was summer funding it also was related because there weren't enough well two reasons first of all i didn't want to have a large class because you cannot have these kind of discussions if you teach 60 students or so unless you have a have a lot of TAs and then extra, which we which they do with the what is a good life. Um, so, but yeah, the funding just wasn't there anymore. So they took this away, and so I didn't teach the class. Um, with the the other classes um, that I talked about earlier, also were uh, financed by the Center for Spirituality and Health. So um, that is would be a possibility to teach to that, but that means that would be an extra class that I would be teaching because I could not swap it for my regular teaching load, you know? And um, yeah, that would require me to teach one extra class and um, I don't have the time. Um, so I'm teaching as a compromise to that. I was uh, teaching what is a good life, which is uh, a really large class in the summer. Um, but as I say, they, they, they needed also instructors because it was a required class. Now they, because it's not required anymore, um, this summer they didn't need so many instructors. They only needed two and not from our college. And another compromise is that I'm teaching this Uncommon Reads, which is an honors class with only one credit rather than three. So it only meets um, once a week for 50 minutes. Um, and I, I don't get paid for it. I, I get, a, get an allowance. Uh, uh, I get $1,000 in travel money, basically. Um, but I consider it a service, you know, to students, and that's why I'm offering it. And I can, um, yeah, I can, I can do what, what, what I, what I really like to do, which is offer a class in a small, relatively small. It's capped at fifteen, and um, 
and I can hopefully help some students to grow a little bit wiser. I love this idea of service that you said, and I'm sure it really shines from you and students must really, really appreciate it. So thank you for <laughs> everything that you do. Um, and so, you know, speaking of challenges that we might have not expected, the pandemic, um, you know, it isn't the same as conducting a large class, so the challenges will be different. But do you think that you can conduct a class like this in a virtual setting? You know, is it possible to create a community of inquiry from your desktop? Well, I, I actually, um, I was surprised how well it went with Zoom. Yeah, because I um, was teaching this Uncommon Read the first time last year. And first, when I heard that we had to do it online, I, I, I really wasn't thrilled because I was really looking forward to the community of inquiry in a circle, you know, and talking face to face and being in the same room. But then I thought maybe now it's really the time that this might be really sorely needed uh, during a pandemic. And so we had it online and it worked perfectly all right. You know, I'm, I mean, we had, you know, with Zoom, um, you have the breakout rooms, students met in the breakout rooms and, uh, and then we came together as a whole class. It worked. It worked fine. It was much better than I thought it would. And really with the help of the breakout rooms that there could be um, some kind of a smaller community where people got to know each other and I could drop in and visit and uh no it was actually quite nice perfect okay and um so again given the precarious nature of the pandemic you know whether it's loneliness or misinformation and so on do you think or do you hope to see more courses or programs that educate for wisdom or similar courses like that over the next few years well, yes. Um, as I say, we have relative, we have this program at the university, um, which is now called Quest. And the idea is indeed to help students to broaden their mind, not just to just focus on their major and do nothing else but um, to broaden their mind and learn about the world. And what is a good life is now part of Quest, but there are other classes. It's now encouraged that other classes are developed and that are based on this community of inquiry in, in, in different areas. So, so yes, the in, university has invested to, in, in this to a certain degree and um, we will see how it goes. What do you think of teaching for wisdom at younger ages, like they do in philosophy for children? Yeah, that's a great question. When I first learned about the idea of philosophy for children, I was a bit taken aback. I thought, no, it's complex ideas. Small students can't, maybe high school students. But um, I was in classrooms with first graders who were doing philosophy. Uh, and again, the idea of intrinsic motivation where you you throw out complex ideas and ask students for their um, understanding, maybe moral dilemmas or uh, things that they've experienced in their own lives. And they're amazingly articulate and thoughtful. And you can do philosophy on a very high level with very young students. Um, it's counterintuitive, I think, to think that. But what I've seen in the classroom um, has been just amazing. 